This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Alice Garner, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Jean Hopman about her new book, Surviving Emotional Work for Teachers, Improving Wellbeing and Professional Learning Through Reflexive Practice, published in 2020 by Routledge. Dr. Hopman is a lecturer and researcher in initial teacher education at Victoria University in Melbourne, Australia. She has taught and counselled in diverse educational settings, including government schools, private schools, international schools, alternative education settings and universities. Storytelling is at the heart of the work that you've been doing, Jean, so I thought I'd tell a little story of how I come to be interviewing you before I ask about your story. Um, so the year that you, you published an article, uh, in the conversation about teachers' emotional work not being recognised, I think it was in 2017, and I was teaching high school at that time, and I remember seeing the article and it really struck a chord with me, um, and I knew you vaguely from the sidelines of our son's football teams, <laughs> and I I'd really like to have a conversation with Jean about this at some stage. Um, And I think we may have had a very brief chat one day about it. But then the book came out and by that time I had actually left teaching and it was a conversation I still wanted to have. So having signed up to be a um, a host on this uh, New Books in Education podcast, I thought this is a good one to start with. Something that, you know, I think is really important and that, perhaps doesn't get acknowledged enough. Um, So for me, it was sort of an opportunity to have that conversation that we never really had, but in (laughs) a more public um, uh, forum, I suppose. So I I guess the first question I wanted to ask you was what led you to write this book Um, and perhaps to explain something of why storytelling and and narrative inquiry has been such an important part of this project for you. Yeah. Maurice, thank you for having me, um, Alice, and I'm glad we can have this conversation today. I had, you know, in in your intro, you sort of described I've taught in uh, a a range of different settings. Um, I started in um, 2000 in a private school, um, I went into a registered training organisation and um, was the director of literacy and numeracy developing programs for um, often very marginalised and disadvantaged young people. Um, I have worked at an international school overseas in um, the United Arab Emirates and um, have worked in... Um, uh, in an alternative education setting here back in, in Melbourne, working with, uh, again, marginalised young women. And in all of those settings, I um, recognised the emotional work that was required. Didn't matter, you know, whether from the, you know, the private school or the international school, which was, you know, very well resourced, um, compared to education settings, working with you know young people um, with really very complex and difficult circumstances, and I mean I think w- we work with young people um, with a whole range of needs in every setting. So I recognised that there were there were there was this common thread of emotional work through all of those settings, um, but I suppose it's the fir- the the first story that I start with, which is Stephen's the story of Stephen in the book, um, which, you know, was early on in my teaching career. Um, And, you know, Stephen Stephen was this 
um, young person that I just found really difficult to teach. Um, and I found it really difficult to establish a relationship with Stephen. And I recognised it at the time and I couldn't quite figure out why. Um, and, you know, I just, it was just because he was difficult. But I also did have this understanding that other students who were also difficult, I could still develop a relationship with. And it wasn't until about eight years I think it was eight years after teaching Stephen and I was having a conversation with a group of colleagues, you know, at a reunion and we're talking about, you know, back in the day and the different students that we taught and and I had, you know, sort of been constantly thought about Stephen throughout that eight years, you know, Stephen would pop back into my mind and I, you know, sort of inquired about Stephen, um, if anyone knew, you know, where he was at, what he was up to. And I, I had mentioned that I just found it really hard to teach Stephen. And all, I recognised that all of the other teachers um, also found Stephen difficult but talked about him fondly and, and I sort of thought, well, that's a bit strange. You know, like I was the only one that really struggled to find the the um, – the attachment, you know, in a in in a teacher, you know, our teacher student relationship, or to be, you know, yeah, connected in in. I, I had definitely sort of through that conversation recognised that I had kept Stephen at a distance for some reason, and I suppose that conversation then led me to think, well, what was happening for me at that time? And I realised that it was also at a time in my life that was very. Um, difficult and were you know I was facing um, the prospects of you know infertility and um, never becoming a a mother and I talk about in the in the book that you know Stephen's difficult behavior required this type of mothering that I think that I had distanced myself from um, and so you know and I sort of did a lot of thinking about that myself and a lot of conversational work. Um, and then through – it was also probably at the, at the same time um, I had undertaken, you know, a postgraduate study in psychoanalytic psychotherapy and thinking about that, the context and, you know, human development and, you know, attachment theory and a whole range of, you know, sort of – yeah, work around relationships um, probably enlightened me a little bit. And I thought, I wonder, you know, now that I have these new tools in my toolkit, I wonder how um, they can be, uh, you know, utilised in a, in a teaching framework. And so that's what sort of led to the to the research and, um, and that element of emotion being uh, significant I think but something it was clearly there and it was clearly you know there was a lot going on but we just didn't have the tools really to talk about it or to think about it as teacher professionals um, and so I thought I wonder I wonder what could happen if we did have those tools. <laughs> so tell me about the next steps you you undertook this research um, as part of a doctorate is that right was it the same project that has kind of been turned now into a book or has were there other steps yeah so it was the the doctoral research so the book is a result of the doctoral research um, and I've published a couple of other pieces um, the teacher emotional rules sort of you know, um, and that methodology behind that um, in a in a chapter in another book, and um, and I also explored um, reflexivity in research as an ethical tool as well. Um, but yeah, so this is all stemmed from the doctoral research, really, and I just felt like it was, you know, this this stuff sits in a thesis somewhere, and um, and I really wanted to try to find a way to get it to teachers. Um, I'm not saying that it's, you know, absolutely vital for every single teacher, but it, if, if it helps, you know, a teacher, three teachers, some teachers, a group of teachers, then, you know, it's, it's, it's worth it. So we might come back to that later about where you see this heading. Um, but I'd like to know more about your, the methodology you chose, um, the, 
you know, the teacher researchers that you worked with, how that unfolded and how your approach kind of evolved over, over that time. Yes, it was very emerging. <laughs> um, I think actually from the beginning I was really wanting to explore um, the teacher-student relationship and, um, you know, because that, and that, that the story of Stephen was, re- you know, very much focused on the relationship between teacher and student. Um, and then I sort of thought when I started to look into that a little bit more, uh, I mean, it, it's a huge, huge topic, of course, but I thought there is no there is no real understanding, and this was my experience as well, there is no real understanding of the relationship until you can understand yourself, you know, until you can understand you in that experience or in that moment. And so um, reflexivity became a really important part of the research. So I then thought, well, it's about teacher reflexivity. So I needed to work... Um, in depth with teachers. I knew I wanted it to be in a uh, single school so that we could start to look at or, you know, try to gain some sense of um, of a collective of teachers that understand, have some sort of understanding of each other's um, predicament and the experiences that they might have. And to start off with, um, I approached the school and, you know, said, look, this, this is what I want to explore, which is the emotional, you know, aspects of teaching. Um, and I would like to do that through um, participatory action research to begin with. That was what I was focusing on. Um, and that... Um, to begin with, I would, you know, would start with some background interviews with the participants, but that it would be a, gr- you know, sort of involve group um, conversations, and, you know, I think I had about um, a maximum of ten over a year, um, and you know, I had the the, the question of, you know, um, how can emotional consciousness impact. Um, teacher agency, so I was focusing on teacher agency um, and can reflexivity, you know, support teacher agency. And basically the first three teachers that popped up their hands, I went, yeah, sure, this sounds interesting, I'd like to explore, um, became the first group of teachers that I worked with. And so with that group of teachers, we went through one cycle Um, which was, you know, like a cycle of reconnaissance just to figure out, um, yeah, what what their stories of emotion were. So there were sort of two background interviews I I actually sort of probed into, you know, so what emotions do you typically feel, you know, um, what experiences might lead to them, what do you think the catalyst is and, and those sorts of more specific questions and then after that we went into what we called the collaborative inquiry process Um, and to begin with the teachers and I worked um, one-to-one so I worked individually with those three teachers to begin with in that first cycle Um, and we actually started with um, because it's pretty hard we're not very well um, poised to to, to talk about emotion in um, in Western society and to, to sort of, you know, just lay it out there. So we actually used, uh, um, I encouraged the teachers, they could bring a story of their own or that if they wanted, they could bring a media story, whatever media story that, you know, sort of struck them as being important. And... Um, and they would come to the to the you know to the session, and we'd start with the story. Okay, what story did you bring? Um, and we talk about the story, and then we'd talk about you know okay, so you know what sort of emotion do we think is you know underlying this story, and and then the next stage would sort of be you know would always connect to their work. So and I'm talking about stories like. 
um, there was one story I recall, uh, it was back when um, Tony Abbott threatened to shirt front Putin, I don't know, <laughs> you know, um, and the teacher had brought this story in and was talking about, um, was talking about, you know, how the, um, you know, just the, how bizarre, you know, what an outrageous thing to do, like this, you know, puffing of the chest and, you know, this aggression. Um, and then um, I sort of, we the conversation unfolded and it changed into talking about power and the power dynamics that in within the school and, you know, um, between staff and between students and teachers and you know and 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 you know masculinity and and that kind of thing so it sort of it would start with a, a news you know a media story but it would sort of always end up back in the school focus and um, another news story was about um, a teacher you know who had read a story um, a really really difficult and terrible story of um, a, a you know, murder suicide with young children, and talking about some. You know, it, 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 that sort of shifted into a school setting and talking about how difficult it can be um, seeing, you know, some of the students that we teach suffer um, in different circumstances. Whether it's through, you know, it could be you know, difficult home circumstances or, you know, financial barriers or a whole range of things. Um, so, yeah, that's how it started, that first cycle. Um, and through that first cycle, basically I was just analysing it to try to find the um, – how the narratives unfolded. Well, actually, at that time, it was, wasn't until that first cycle that I went, narrative inquiry is actually – absolutely vital to this piece of research. I was initially focusing on the action, you know, um, what would happen, but really it's the pro the process was really important as well and narrative inquiry captures that. And so the stories I wanted to then try to explore, basically the shifts in the stories, how they flowed and what might lead to, you know, a closing down of a story and what might lead to, you know, a deeper sort of inquiry. Um, and through that first cycle of action, then we went into the, um, the second cycle of action and we had a little bit of a structure that we were ready to then trial. So through the conversations with the teachers, you know, we were sharing our stories. Then I would sort of, we'd sort of talk about, okay, so I've noticed that, you know, it's really important to um, a lot of the talk is about what we're doing wrong or what's wrong. And, you know, actually, is it important to think of the strengths and those sorts of things? And so we had those sorts of conversations as well. And by the second cycle, then we had a little bit of a structure to trial um, as a group. So then we came together as a group um, and we trialled that structure. The teachers by that stage were sort of feeling um, comfortable to start bringing, uh, we didn't need the media stories anymore. Some some took more time with the media stories and others actually went, actually, I don't need a media story at all. Here's a story. Um, and then, this, yeah, that, that second cycle was we were, we were ready to come together um, and start sharing stories. But, of course, also as time goes on, there's a whole lot of building trust that needed to happen as well, and then the third cycle was actually when um, a, a group of three new teachers came in. Um, so the first group of teachers had moved on to facilitating the collaborative inquiry process um, on their own, and I really just became an observer. And the third cycle was also that opportunity for that second group of new teachers hadn't you know, engaged in the research as yet to then trial this structure that the first group had developed because it might work for them but it might not work for a new group. So, you know, we trialled it with the new group. 
Oh, that's interesting because um, later on in the book you talk about working out ways to incorporate this kind of process into a professional learning kind of program or something similar. And and I, I did have a question about, you know, um, you mentioned that the teachers had said they felt they needed a facilitator or facilitation and I was curious to know about how that might evolve like you know would they be trained or but it's interesting that that it sort of comes out of that process that someone might then feel equipped to guide another group through that process yeah and that was all negotiators as well like some people felt more confident to um to facilitate um and others were you know, sort of happy to not facilitate. Um, actually, in the article I wrote, when we talked, it, I talk about the opportunity to facilitate sort of became a bit of a, um, a reflexive experience for me in a way, in mani- you know, in, in trying to guide this research um, because, you know, there was a participant who um, was hesitant to to research because they felt that their voice was often privileged and so they sort of held back and you know so yeah it was all very it was all very negotiated and this the the teacher researchers you know drove um drove the 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 project and like I said and it emerged so when I first started I didn't actually, you know, in the book I talk about the teacher emotional rules, which I think have become really important and central to the research, but I didn't start out actually looking for that at all. I didn't start out searching for particular emotions. I didn't didn't name any emotions to begin with. I sort of let the teachers just... um, their experiences spoke for themselves and then I just went back through and analysed it and and just, you know, sort of picked out um, through the thematic analysis the emotions that they were talking about. I was really interested to see that at the top of the list of the emotions that you you list as notable emotions or ones that emerged in various ways through the stories was defeat. (laughs) Could you talk to that a little bit? Yes, I can. I think that it's it's a strange word to use for an emotion to begin with and I did grapple over what word I should use. Um, it's a little bit, and I think I talk about how Turner talks about shame and it is very similar but it's not quite the same and it's the, there's because it there's the struggle. It's tied up in the struggle um, and in every story um, and there were something like 44 different stories, like I've written about, you know, my, my own and then six others. Um, there was definitely this struggle. There was this pervading, you know, um, f- f- sense of defeat. And there was this magic line that either was, get, you know, going to be crossed or not crossed or you know, but it was sort of there implied in all of the stories. Um, and I think that the reason defeat is inherent in life, like we are, we are all struggling, we are all, you know, and sometimes it's more of a struggle, sometimes it's, it's striving and sometimes we feel like we're thriving. So, and I also, you know, um, did want to, you know, the title of the book, Surviving, is that good enough? Should it be thriving? Thriving in emotional way. But it does, that, that surviving, you know, I think needed to be there because it's about, you know, surviving the struggle. And that, that was sort of what was central through the teachers' stories. And I think the other is that contentment and defeat were very both very high up and that they are both very tied up into each other. And I do think, I suspect that defeat possibly, um, you know, there is a chance that it was spoken about more because um, we were, ended up being in this very um, 
you know, scenario or, or group that could be trusted with these difficult stories. So they're more likely the stories to be shared. Um, whereas it's pretty easy to go into a staff room and talk about that. Oh, yeah, I've had a great day. And, oh, yeah, this wonderful thing happened. And, you know, you can sh- you can share those stories easily and with a range of people. And I suppose in the, um, the space that we'd created, um, the teachers may have, you, you know, recognised, well, this is a space where I can talk about those other stories that I can't really talk about there. So I think that could be part of it as well. Um, but I think, you oh, did, sorry, go, Alice. Sorry, yeah, you described them as difficult to share stories. Yeah, difficult to share, definitely. Yeah, and, and I, it got me thinking too. I mean, as I looked through before I'd read the whole book, but when I just looked at the chapters and, you, and each chapter is based on one story and immediately I felt that I could connect with each of those stories and then as I read the book I thought wow you know it's almost like they're almost like archetypal stories in some way that that any teacher will have some version of that experience um but that yeah and I and then I began to wonder whether it was those stories that somehow just sit in your belly somewhere that you're feeling like I haven't really sorted that one out it's still hovers there somewhere and I wonder if you know that brings in a sort of sense of the the bodily um expressions of emotion too you know occasionally if you're rushing through a school day you don't have time to work out what it is that's creating that feeling definitely and it is it was sort of um we talked about that it's sort of like that the stories that were stuck you know, you would churn over them or they'd sit in your gut or um, – and then even when they're talking about the stories, you know, the, uh, in the, the, the stories there's language like feeling gobsmacked and, um, you know, just really – you physically felt, you know, um, and, and, and it stuck. There was often this stuck feeling. Um, and so it sort of became a, a space to talk about these or share these stories to help unstick them, I guess. But I do think that also there were stories, there were plenty of stories that were shared that were um, also the sorts of stories that you, you know, might happily share in a staff room. And um, I think I give an example in the book about a teacher who you know, says, comes in and says, oh, this really awesome thing happened today and, you know, would would talk about this really awesome thing that happened. But even in those really awesome stories, um, there was still often a question of, oh, was that the right thing to do though? Should have I done that? If I did that, if I treated that student, you know, of this really awesome thing and I've, I've, you know, like – um, maybe expressed, you know, real pride in this particular student. Have I left another student out or did I, you know? Um, I think that and that is really why, um, yeah, I mean, I think the structure unfolded the way it did, like I said earlier, in that identifying that the, the strengths as being really important to the process. <laughs> did you find that you and the teacher researchers you worked with uh, did they come out of the end of this process, which presumably they might continue in some form, but but with a sense that they had been able to process or move on or make sense of those stories? Um, yes. Yeah, so the the feedback from the teachers was that the process was really um, helpful in understanding the stories. And they all talked about like... While in the book it looks like, you know, there was a story um, and then there was a whole bunch of discussion that happened after that story, in actual fact these narratives that have been pulled together actually may have unfolded over um, a year. So, you know, because I I met with the teachers repeatedly, even with the, the second group I met with them Um, probably over six months but I still met with them repeatedly and what tended to happen is that um, while the the stories in the book um, are you know an individual you know like story that they would 
resurface in later meetings. So at the start of a session, a teacher would share a story and then everybody else's stories is, is going to centre around that one story. But even though it still centres around that one story, there were still ways in which the teachers would cycle back to their, you know, a story that they might have shared, you know, three weeks ago or, or a month ago or whatever. Um, and some of those same themes that they would keep exploring. So it was – there were – for each – of the teachers, there were things that they were working through and specific things that they were working through. Um, And it actually didn't matter so much what the initial starting story was in the session, they would still be working through their own things, if that makes sense. And, um, And so the narratives that have been pulled together are actually based on, so I've got the initial story at the start of each chapter and then the quotes that follow are often the quotes and the revelations they've had about that story but later on and it could have been you know months later on um, where they've cycled back to hey you remember that story about blah and I just thought the other day blah 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 um and in the debrief interviews, when I sort of went back and said, "Okay, so now let's have a uh, think about the, you know, the whole the process and, you know, what what your thoughts of it are," um, all of the teachers thought that it was um, well. And I mean, they used things like it, that it was almost therapeutic and cathartic and. Um, just de- that they felt de- calmer and more relaxed and and um, helpful in those kinds of ways, um, but there were there were also they did talk about conditions for it to be successful in a school as well. Well, actually, on that, let's think a little bit about the terms that you use to differentiate different types of stories. Um, uh, I'm thinking of the secret. The, the, the sacred stories, actually, the secret and the cover stories. Um, and sort of tied in with that, the observation that you made about certain emotions being considered, well, not ones that you would want to name or that somehow are seen as sort of a sign that you're not being professional or, you know, and I see those things as all sort of intertwined, but I'd love to hear a bit more about your thoughts on that I think you're completely on the money there Alice they are all intertwined and it's very hard to um you know and I think that one of the things that I've found the trickiest is in separating it out I don't want to minimize um any element of you know of teachers work really um I don't think it's easy to grasp and to talk about and um and really they so I've tried to sort of think of these elements but um, in a collective sense as well um, for the person and a group of people and the culture that they sit within. But um, I think that the, yeah, so and I think Parker's story um, is a really good example of the, you know, the, the hiding and or faking um, emotions that might be necessary for teachers to undertake their work. And if, you know, drawing on the work of um, Ali Hostard Russell and the, uh, you know, uh, emotional rules, the real issue is that we, we all employ emotional rules. There's, you know, um, cultural context for us to employ emotional rules. And when we do so naturally, it's it's not an issue. Um, it's when we have these, um, what we would call the sacred stories, um, sort of overarching the work that we do, then we, you know, are going to necessarily employ um, culturally constructed rules, but rules that may, um, you know, oppose our what we would we would how we would normally respond emotionally. So, and what I mean by those sacred stories is the, you know, what we say should be happening. 
um, what are what an effective teacher should do, what effective schools should do, um, best practice, and these sorts of which I'm not saying we shouldn't have these things, but when we have um, there are certain circumstances um, and you know, talk about the the long list of what teachers should do and it's sort of growing and becoming more fine-tuned and, you know, um, more task-oriented and that that autonomy becomes reduced. And it's not just autonomy in your action, what you can do, it's how you feel, you know, how you can emote. And... Yeah, Parker's story of I'm not really that I'm not really that frightened, um, but I'm you know from this student who's been violent in my class and you know who is often violent in my class, but I'm going to backpedal away from the student and that kind of thing. So they're um, sort of an example of Parker conjuring up the confidence or trust that they might need. In to have in a student because you can't you can't show fear in a classroom you know um, and the teachers talked about that oh no you can't ever let them show you can't ever show them fear otherwise they know they've they've got control and you know it's a, it that power and control right and wrong um, you know and having these definite barriers to being who you are to being human are there you know it's like um, suppose the teachers often feel like they have to be like robots in a way and detach themselves from who they really are um, to to remain that hardline professional. Yeah, and there's that sense that you are being watched by a whole classroom of students when you're having that interaction, aren't you? So that, you know, there's all sorts of kind of thoughts going on simultaneously about how do I respond to this individual without losing face or whatever it might be or losing control of the class more broadly yeah there's so many elements um and I I thought I thought it was interesting actually you you suggested that in some of those situations and I think I've got the words written here natural warning mechanisms are shut down so that actually in some ways yeah you are having to make unsafe choices in order to keep this whole thing yeah it's like appearing professional or yeah. something it's like nothing to see here nothing to see here we're just you know business as usual and then yeah because and it you know like there's the different levels of the um the surface surface acting that we might employ and that's considered that would be considered um not not particularly harmful because you're conscious of it. You know, it's at the service surface. Um, and teachers would talk about, um, you know, in the research, teachers would talk about um, that they might, you know, they might fake lo- really liking a student, and you know, they might struggle with that student. And but they know, you know, it's it's at a surface. They might hide, um, you know, fr- anger. But they know they're hiding that anger. I'm really ticked off with that student, but oh, okay, this is okay, you know. And they know, but it's that deep acting um, that can be really harmful. And yeah, I mean, in a lot of different, um, not just the teacher education research, um, but also just in mental health research, you know, that those avoidant coping mechanisms are harmful. Um, and it's sort of what we're suggesting teachers need to employ in a way um, because, you know, we do have these um, very rigid expectations of how stu- how teachers should react in classrooms, that they should remain calm no matter what. I mean, you know, even the thinking of the, uh, the story of being in the midst of muck-up day you know, I don't, if any if any teacher's been in the midst of muck up day, I don't know that calm is the right <laughs> the right word that you could use to describe that moment. <laughs> yeah, I have a very strong memory of being on one side of a glass sliding door with 
year 12 students on the other side, you know, throwing stuff and seeing in the crowd kids that I taught and knew and liked. And, but knowing I had to be the, no, you can't come in person. And yet at the same time, feeling that this was such an important day for them to kind of, you know, the world upside down and all of that. So, yeah, really spoke to me. There was an interesting choice. I mean, look, we could keep exploring that the, the stories and the and the acting and all. There are so many layers and elements. Um, but I, I did want to ask you a little bit about a choice that you made, which was um, to use the pronoun they and and not and, and choose non gender specific names for your teachers. Um, could you tell me why you made that choice? Because I think that's you know that's quite unusual. At least it. Maybe not so much now, but you know this is a, a a new development. I'd say in there were two reasons actually, and one was because the group of teachers was so small um, that if I identified them by gender, um, and rem- these you know these the the teachers you know were known to have volunteered for this project. So if I had used the gender, then I think there was a strong possibility that some of the teachers would have been identified through that. So it was to protect their identity, number one. The other was that, you know, I talk about the script for for you know living for ourselves and how that is uh, that evolves that we influence it and that's you know social context um influences the script at the same time and in riley's story um i thought that that was a significant moment to highlight that because that's the story uh, you know there's a story where um, Riley, the teacher, teaching a class. Um, you know, students start talking about, oh, you know, R- Riley, teacher, you could have a relationship with this other teacher. And um, and one of the students, and Riley says, oh, I have a boyfriend. And one of the students says, does your boyfriend have a big schlong? in the middle of the class. Riley freezes, you know, don't know what to do. Um, But in that moment, when you read it, I think that, and I stated in the book, that people would assume Riley's gender based on that question, based on the I have a boyfriend. And there's a few moments actually in the book where, and I, I have had you know, different people say to me, oh, yeah, you know, that teacher is um, is definitely male. And I sit there and think, why do you think that teacher's definitely male? And, you know, they'll explain why. And I'm, I would never say whether they are or they're not, but I am going to say that people do get it wrong. And I think that they're the underlying issues, actually, which is where I'm I'm exploring more now um, that how these sorts of social structures that we have around gender around sexuality around you know ethnicity race religion um, how they frame um, the stories that we that we live and that that how Basically, I would like to explore now the emotional work involved in exploring those sorts of um, contexts and how difficult it can be difficult sometimes. And I think Riley's story is a perfect example of how difficult it can be in navigating that space and not wanting to get it wrong. But, you know, by not wanting to get it wrong, then feeling like I don't know what to do then, I don't know how to respond um, so I just disengage and that can cause, you know, a lot of barriers for teachers and students. In in the conversations that you had with um, the teacher researchers, was there much 
gender analysis along the way? I mean, I'm thinking even back to your story right at the beginning when you talked about the kind of um, teaching as well can be seen as a form of mothering and even that word, you know. So so those elements of sort of care work and the, then the notions of professionalisation of, of, um, of teaching, you know, thinking about how you tease those out um, alongside the choice to to not identify people by gender. So I guess these are just some. Mm. I know. So then there were limitations. There were that that gender was race, religion, sexuality. They all were spoken about a lot, um, and to. Because, yeah, because I, I then, you know, wanted to keep the teacher's identities gender neutral, then, you know, that, that removed the possibility. But in, to be honest, there's possibly another three theses in there. You know, like it's, it was, it was, it's sort of quite huge and it's why I'm, I'm sort of moving into that, you know, exploring that now. Um, but, yeah, and I do – in the thesis I actually talk about that that term mothering that I use a little bit more. And when you – the first – I didn't have space to write about it in the book, but when I initially did the research and I talk about how I um, – in the book how I Googled, you know, Teachers America, Teachers, you know, UK, Teachers Australia, um, I actually did a Google image search and back then – um, when I googled teacher, the image was of a, you know, maybe late twenties to thirty year old, attractive, thin, you know, very um, warm, oozing warmth kind of woman, um, Anglo usually, um, you know, well dressed, covered up, you know. Um, not, not necessarily well-dressed, but, I mean, you know, collar and shirt. And um, and I thought, how interesting. And that was like, you know, you could go down for pages and there were just the repeat image, 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 image of, of this. Um, and I thought that's really interesting, isn't it, that that's how we, you know, when we – society is telling us, you know, reflecting it back to us this is what a teacher looks like um and I'm sitting there thinking I don't look like any of those teachers (laughs) you know um and neither does that my colleague and that colleague and that colleague and that colleague like you know there were men weren't really represented um you know people with brown skin weren't represented there was yeah a, a whole bunch of people that weren't represented um I am pleased to say I did it again not too long ago and there was more diversity in the image of, of a teacher, um, still probably predominantly women. But, yeah, so I think that that whole idea of um, of mothering and, you know, and, and being a teacher and then if we look at our workforce, you know, if we look at the gender balance in our workforce – um, we're predominantly women, particularly in primary schools, um, and it does even out a little bit more in secondary schools. Thinking of of professional identity, and that brings brings this in a way to possibilities in professional learning and professional development too. You know, what is it to be a good teacher, and and what do we need to be working on? I think you know. For myself, I came to teaching uh, as a, you know, late career change teacher and having had children myself. So sort of, you know, you come with certain experiences, life, work, home experiences that are really quite different from, say, first year out of uni in their early 20s, you know. And it, it always seemed to me that professional development and professional learning sessions didn't necessarily acknowledge that. Um, there was a kind of one-size-fits-all feel to it. And it seems to me that what you're thinking about here of this collaborative um, inquiry-type approach opens up 
possibilities for people with much more varied experiences and and ways of going about things to come together and nut things out is that what you're imagining and can you talk a little bit about how you would like to see this process play out definitely actually and you're you're very right like if you think about if I think about the teachers that participated in the research and um, there were several who were, you know, career changes, so um, had previous careers, people who had, um, you know, um, a master's in science and different types of degrees and qualifications that they brought. Um, they were very... Um, yeah, I suppose dif- very different in life experiences. They they were they were definitely not reflective of the images of the Google images of the teacher, right? <laughs> they were very all very different. Had different experiences that they brought, and in the stories that they shared, um, the collaborative inquiry process sort of allows them and even encourages them to think of those other experiences external from the school. So in that process where the first part of the collaborative inquiry process is initially a teacher sharing their story, the next part of the process is, okay, everybody in the group then thinks, you know, talks about and verbalises, okay, the strengths, here's the strengths in this story. And then the next part of the story is sharing perspective. So that's when the other teachers in the group don't necessarily share a different story, like they do share a different story, but they've got to pick a story that has a similar underlying theme to the initial story. So if the initial story you know, had a theme where there were this set of expectations but they were limited in this particular kind of way um, and there were these particular type of feelings, then I wonder if you can think of a, a time when you felt, you know, when you had a similar kind of experience. And that was when a lot of the times the teachers might actually come up with the, the stories and experiences from past workplaces, from, you know, other relationships, relationships with friends, social, you know, clubs or whatever. Um, and it was actually that ability to connect all of these rich sort of experiences um, and to for each of the teachers to see that they're not alone, that it sort of validates their experience because it has happened elsewhere, that it does happen in other settings. Because so I think this is the other thing with schools is that schools are sort of, um, well, strange places in a way. Um, they're not quite like other workplaces and they can be quite isolated. And so, you know, to have these moments and opportunities to sort of think about their their work in through another perspective and in another context is actually really important. And I think also for those teachers who did ha- have those experiences, it was also validating for them as well. I have this other experience and, you know, to share and to um to, to use and it helps them, might help them connect that experience and skill and wisdom to their current predicament. Have you looked into or tried to implement anything um, sort of since your work on this project within schools or have you been sort of thinking about how that might be done? Well, you know, what are the challenges but also what are the opportunities? Um, look, I would, yes, I've sort of um, looked at, so that sort of the debrief interviews with the teachers really helped frame the, you know, like I said, what were the challenges and how to best structure it. Um, I haven't gone back into a school. I would love to actually go back into a school with it. Um, I have actually been using the process um, at Victoria University actually with staff and students um, as a way to explore um, cultural identity actually. So I was sort of 
like I'd sort of mentioned earlier, the I suppose the ways in which our um, social framings might, you know, impact on how someone sees themselves and what, you know, who they can be, um, exploring that with, um, so university teachers and students. But I would like to get back into schools. I think COVID over the last couple of years has made that very difficult. So um, hopefully when we can get back into schools, maybe that is something that could be possible. I think it would be fantastic. And and I think in, in recent years, there's been a bit of a, a spate of kind of corporate style um, professional development things going on that are not a great fit, it seems to me, often with teachers. You know, they, they'll take a model from a big corporation and sort of adjust it a little bit and present it to teachers. And, and I had a few experiences where I thought, this is not speaking to our profession, like it doesn't understand. And part of that is it, that it is a care profession and it's not a profit-driven profession. So um, I think that, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of interesting possibilities that you, you explore. Um, I, I'm just thinking about, you, you talk about the impossible script that teachers are supposed to follow. <laughs> now I'm conscious that we're running out of time, but I think it's an interesting um, idea. And I, I guess I was wondering whether you think it's possible to rewrite that script or whether it's more a matter of acknowledging that it is an impossible script and that we simply have to find a way to live with it somehow. <laughs> yeah. I think that... A bit like the, you know, I talk about um, Riddle and Webb's wicked problems. I think education and most human service work is really, you know, they're wicked problems and that they're very, very complicated and it's not so much a solution. There's a, it's a resolution or resolution, you know, um, going around and around and around again. So if we're, if I'm talking about impossible and whether something is possible, you know, whether there is a solution. Well, maybe not a solution, but definitely some evolution or some shifting. I think that the impossible script is impossible and it was impossible for these teachers in a, in a way until they understood or had an idea, a sense of those underlying expectations the limitations and the assumptions that were driving those those narratives. Once you understand where the multiple writers of the script, you know, where it's coming from, then you can feel like you have some autonomy to write the next, you know, chapter. And I think that the uniform story um, Remy's story, where the teachers at the end start talking about, um, you know, and you, you think a uniform is something, in fact, I've heard it described as trivial, not that important, but actually it's really very important. I mean, for a young person, telling them what to wear is a big thing, right? <laughs> but also then it's that, not that different from what you were describing, um, Alice, and standing behind the glass on muck-up day and, you know, having to maybe tell these students off who you're sort of thinking, yeah, but they're just, you know, they're having their day. It's a bit like that, you know, depending on how you feel about uniforms and, you know, oh, do I really want to spend time, you know, picking up students on a uniform when they actually haven't had three square meals today or, you know, um, and those sorts of things. And they talk about, the teachers talk about that moment where they've gone, we actually do need to question something as simple as a uniform and why we're doing it and who it serves Um because then that's how the script can be shifted. And I think there's also moments, um, Avery's story, about talking with the students and, you know, this, that, that, that was the muck-up day, the, the muck day story and talking with the students about what had happened and being open and honest about it and having that. So I think that schools 
can shift the script, but it's going to, I think it is going to take reflexivity and whether it's the collaborative inquiry process or something like it, um, that is what it's going to have to take because I think it's also the issues of, um, you know, the power and structure within schools, who makes the decisions, why they make, you know, whose voices are heard, whose voices are not heard. Um, until we can sort of get to those deeper questions, then, um, yeah, maybe the script will stay as it is, but if we can, it would be great. So you've posed yourself another wicked problem for the next book, I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's um, been a pleasure to talk to you and uh, we've just hit an hour exactly and I think that's a, a good length and, and I think, we covered a lot of the things I wanted to ask you about, but I feel like this conversation might continue um, in future in other settings. Yes, I hope so. I hope so with you too, Alice. Yeah, thanks a lot, Jean.